Thanks for downloading this University College Dublin Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and the Idea of Liberty in Ireland, from Magna Carta to the Present. This Irish Legal History Society conference took place in Christchurch Cathedral in November 2016. The event was organised to mark the 800th anniversary of the transmission of Magna Carta to Ireland. This episode features a paper by Patrick Gagan from Trinity College Dublin. His paper was entitled Daniel O'Connell versus the Chartists. The lecture was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Thank you. I might begin by just uh, explaining a change of title uh, in my paper. It was originally going to be Daniel O'Connell and the idea of liberty in the 19th century. It's changed to Daniel O'Connell versus the Chartists. And we heard in Professor Kenny's superb paper yesterday how Daniel O'Connell made reference to Magna Carta throughout his career. For example, in 1813, in the famous McGee trial, uh, he referred to it again in the 1830s when he was in the British Parliament. He talked about how he derived all his ideas on parliamentary reform from Magna Carta. He believed, though, that it had been betrayed by the nobility. And he addressed the Parliament saying, uh, I believe the same things. My accents may be different. It may have a touch of the Irish mountain about it but that the principles he he believed in uh, could be traced back to that. You also see an interesting uh, linkage between O'Connell and Magna Carta uh, towards the end of Finnegan's Wake when uh, Joyce links the two in in a sentence uh, and uh, Joyce of course uh, believed that he was descended from O'Connell on his mother's side. He was he was always very fond of O'Connell, and it was interesting the way he linked uh, uh, the great charter of liberty with uh, the person who he saw as the great the great champion of liberty. But the more I looked into it, I saw that uh, really where you see O'Connell's ideas on liberty really most firmly developed was uh, in his relationship with the Chartists, who themselves derived their name from the People's Charter, which was inspired by Magna Carta. And I thought that uh, given the time here, it would be worth exploring O'Connell's role in the Chartist movement and especially uh, the strong role, he, he, the campaign he waged against it in Ireland. Defending himself at his trial for conspiracy in 1844, Daniel O'Connell presented his campaign against the Chartists as evidence of the calming influence of his political leadership. Claiming that he had kept Ireland free from their pollution, he boasted that if he had not opposed Chartism, it would have spread from one end of Ireland to the other and would have destabilised the country. O'Connell accepted that there was something fascinating for the poorer classes in the principles of the Charter, and he was proud that, although they had offered their support for appeal, he had denounced them. I denounced their doctrines. I drove them from Ireland. This was no idle boast. The intensity of O'Connell's campaign against Chartism stunted their efforts to gain support in Ireland. In a public letter in 1839, he even declared that in Ireland, Chartism is altogether illegal. Similarly, in Britain, he was virulent in his opposition and his hatred for them was reciprocated. The reasons for O'Connell's virulent opposition to Chartism and the Chartist leaders, both in Ireland and Britain, were complex and have never been easily explained. 
It is more confusing when we look at his role in the creation of the movement in 1837. Not only was O'Connell involved in the original discussions which led to the writing of the People's Charter published in 1838, he is even credited with naming it. Apparently it was O'Connell who suggested the name from which the term Chartist derived, both so that it could link with Magna Carta and also to differentiate it. This charter was not between king and barons, but between all the people. In her study of Magna Carta, Natalie Fried has argued that the Chartists employed Magna Carta as a war cry, but the content which they gave it had by now completely departed from the historical reality of the Charter itself. It was rooted as much in myth as in reality. But it was a powerful evocation and provided a supposed justification for the Chartists to arm and drill for their own self-defence. The militant wing of Chartism was to be one factor in alienating O'Connell, but the fact that within months he had not only moved away from the movement, but had established himself as one of its greatest enemies, is worthy of examination. What had changed? The tone and intensity of O'Connell's opposition to Chartism was undoubtedly shaped by conflicting personalities. But the terms of the disagreement were rooted in O'Connell's strong views on the danger of radical social movements, which channeled the anger and resentment of the lower orders. This made them, in his mind, nothing better than socialists, rank, arrogant, and blasphemous infidels. Despite this, O'Connell had been willing to channel the aims and ambitions of the movement in its early stages, and it is worth exploring how he became involved in the creation of the Chartists. The six key principles that were to become the People's Charter were drawn up by William Lovett, the secretary of the London Working Men's Association, and presented as a petition at a public meeting on the 28th of February, 1837. These principles were based around the reform of the electoral system and called for universal suffrage for all males over the age of 21, annually elected parliaments, the removal of any property qualification to become an MP, payment of MPs, equal representation, and election by secret ballot. This petition was signed by 3,000 people and entrusted to John Arthur Roebuck, a radical MP, to take forward. O'Connell was an honorary member of the association and he accepted an invitation to, to meet to discuss ways of proceeding. At this meeting in May, O'Connell proposed three of the key resolutions, an indication of his enthusiasm, and he was appointed to the committee to draft the bill. Despite his energetic engagement with the organisation of the movement, O'Connell was not convinced by all of the principles of the Charter. At a meeting of the London Working Men's Association on the 7th of June, 1837, he opposed the idea of annual parliaments, believing that elections every three years were preferable. And he urged a focus on the demand for reform of the House of Lords so that it would be responsible directly and potentially to the people. At this meeting, O'Connell presented his most radical idea, and perhaps given his sense of self-importance, uh, perhaps a not surprising idea. He wanted an alternative association to be created along the lines of his movements in Ireland, with himself as the leader, to procure justice for the working classes. Lovett and the other members were reluctant to support his claims, and rejected the idea of campaigning for reform of the Lords on the basis that there already existed a society to campaign for this. Having failed to secure dominance over the movement, and fearful of some of its tactics, 
O'Connell's enthusiasm quickly faded. The Chartists, from the beginning, had a physical force wing and a moral force wing, names they adopted themselves, and a clear tension existed between the two. O'Connell rejected the first for its adherence to the use of force and the second for the character of its leaders. In his heart, O'Connell was essentially an 18th century social conservative, and his views on mobilising the lower orders were shaped by his experiences of the French Revolution and what had happened in Ireland in 1798. For all that O'Connell was the great demagogue and the greatest proponent of demotic oratory in the 19th century, the irony is that he was always fearful of the uncontrollable nature of the masses. The risk of violence was too great, and he preferred respectable, more orderly, more middle-class campaigns. The, the only thing he admired about the Chartists was that they proved there was a public mind ready for agitation, and he waited for an opportunity to unite a large portion of the middle classes in favour of further reform. This, he said, was our great hope. Despite all his reservations, O'Connell completed work on the bill, presenting it to Lovett with the words, There, Lovett, is your charter. Agitate for it, and never be content with anything else. The, the Glasgow cotton spinners' strike in 1837 and the arrest and prosecution of the leaders was the catalyst for the publication of the Charter and also O'Connell's break from them. Many of the spinners were Irish and at least two of the leaders. O'Connell's opposition to trade unionism was now being crystallised and he sided with the Whigs, maintaining his alliance, and he disowned trade unionism in general and the strikers in particular. Simultaneously, O'Connell was attacking, attacking trade unionism in Ireland, for despite their support for repeal, he feared the restrictive practices and violence, as Emmett O'Connor's work has shown. For a time, he came under sustained attack and his popularity suffered, and he even considered withdrawing from politics completely. A street ballot at the time attacked O'Connell for his support of Whiggish laws and insisted, away with his politics, they are not worth a straw. Worse, the Chartists were prepared to support a return to power of the Tories as a way of removing the Whigs, and this convinced O'Connell they could never be trusted. While there has been a recent historiographical debate about whether Chartism was a class movement, there is a clear consensus that it was a working class movement, deeply ambivalent about the middle classes. What was initially seen as a new form of parliamentary radicalism came to be viewed as political sedition, as the work of Miles Taylor has shown. In 1839, the Chartists attempted to organise the so-called Sacred Month, a full national strike lasting an entire month, but there was little appetite and it was reduced to a three-day national holiday. All this further alienated O'Connell. The increasing dominance of Fergus O'Connor, O'Connell's one-time ally and now his hated adversary, made the conflict personal. Fergus's was just one of the names that O'Connell used to describe the Chartists. On the 18th of November, 1837, O'Connor founded a Chartist weekly newspaper, the Northern Star, the very name and incitement, and its circulation was soon 60,000. O'Connor became a key figure, despite the fact that many of his colleagues could not stand him. Lovett called him the great I am of politics and believed he was the blight of democracy. Others in the movement called him, amongst various names, the dictator, a cowardly and malignant demagogue, a rogue and a liar. Defending O'Connor, 
the sociologist Frank F. Rosenblatt has suggested that it was as natural for O'Connor to dictate as it was for others to follow. Looking at this from the 21st century, it is hard to think of another left-wing political leader so unpopular with his own side, so divisive and ideologically driven, and so difficult to remove. (laughs) Or perhaps not. In May 1839, O'Connell boasted that because of his opposition, scarcely an Irishman in Britain had joined the Chartists. This was untrue, and he knew it because there was a heavy Irish involvement in Newcastle and other northern towns. Historians have disagreed about the numbers of Irish who were involved with the Chartists in Britain. Mark Hovell, Chartism's first historian, saw the Irish as a swarm that provided the shock troops. In her superb thesis on the movement, Rachel O'Higgins has analysed the significant Irish leadership, the influence of Irish themes and the considerable Irish involvement. More recently, J.H. Treble has drawn a, a distinction between the large number of Irish among the Chartist leadership and the rank and file involvement. Dorothy Thompson, in turn, has suggested that although the leaders of Irish movements in Britain were openly hostile, this did not necessarily preclude Irish involvement, and she argues that there was a considerable Irish presence in the Chartist movement. In the autumn of 1839, the Newport Rising seemed to confirm O'Connell's worst fears about Chartism. Around 10,000 Welsh miners and workers, armed with muskets and pikes, attempted to liberate one of the Chartist leaders in prison on the night of the 4th of November, in what was seen as the precursor to a general insurrection in South Wales. The Rising itself was easily quashed, with the police and army catching the men by surprise, killing 10 and wounding many more. O'Connell was jubilant and boasted that it was we, the Irish, who had beaten the Chartists at Newport. He gave the credit to 28 Irish lads, led by Captain Stack, a Kerry man, he boasted, adding, and I do believe, a papist. Fergus O'Connor had been in Ireland when the Rising broke out and claimed that he had not been aware of its planning. This was possibly true, although William Lovett and Bronte O'Brien both claimed that he was aware of it. Inconsistent in his support for the physical force movement, O'Connell had always, O'Connor had always retreated when faced with opposition. The Chartists clearly divided between moral force and physical force elements, and it has been suggested that O'Connor fitted into neither camp neatly. He occupied an ambiguous middle position, threatening to use intimidation to secure his objectives, but without resorting to violence. O'Connor is usually seen as the wayward disciple of O'Connell, but it was O'Connell who adopted and modified this strategy in the 1840s in the campaign for repeal, an upgrade on the successful strategy for emancipation and civil rights in the 1820s. Fergus O'Connor and about 500 Chartists were arrested in the aftermath of the Newport Rising, bringing to an end the first phase of the Chartist agitation. O'Connell was vitriolic about the wretched and deluded Chartists and pledged that 500,000, so half a million fighting men from Ireland, would defend the Queen and the country if threatened. From this point on, O'Connell was was viewed as an apostate by the Chartists, a hypocrite who had encouraged them and then disowned them. Some radicals from this point on opposed repeal because of O'Connell's perceived betrayal of Chartism. 
O'Connell's opposition to trade unions and chartism made him a figure of hatred for many working-class radicals in Britain. The Charter, the official newspaper of the movement, denounced him frequently in its pages, for example, attacking him in December 1839 for his insane and brutal attacks on the Chartists. When Fergus O'Connor and Bronte O'Brien joined the London branch of the Repeal Association in London in 1843, O'Connell ensured that their money was returned. Instructions were sent that they would have no further contact with the Chartists if they wanted to act with us and under the guidance of our august leader. O'Connell's authority in the middle of the year of the great monster meetings was unchallenged, and the British repealers promised to follow his instructions. O'Connell was determined to block Chartism from being introduced into Ireland. He recognised that there was something fascinating for the poorer classes in the principles of the Charter, and feared that their revolutionary mania would wreck its choicest havoc in Ireland. Part of the concern was that they would violate property rights and lead to a complete revolution in the social order. A Chartist meeting in Dublin in 1839 was disrupted by two of O'Connell's henchmen, who insisted that he had declared Chartism illegal in Ireland. O'Connell opposed the Chartists for being wicked towards the government and doubly wicked towards the people, whose object was to mix the agitation of the repeal with crime. O'Connell frequently attacked the Chartists in public for attempting to secure human liberty through the shedding of blood. He said, The wild excesses of the wretched, deluded Chartists made them a double row of traitors. At a public meeting in 1841, he declared that membership of the Chartists should be a transportable offence. Brutal and uncompromising, O'Connell adopted a scorched-earth policy to destroy the movement. His tactics were largely successful, and the movement never exceeded more than a 1,000 members in Ireland in O'Connell's lifetime. In the summer of 1841, there was an attempt to create a Chartist group in Drogheda, and 50 members joined after a visit by Peter Hoey, a Chartist leader from Barnsley who was a native of the, t- of the town. O'Connell journeyed to Drogheda to denounce the organisation and accused Hoey of being the emissary of Fergus O'Connor. He demanded to know if the people would allow this foul-mouthed Chartist vagabond to pour his vituperation upon me. As a result of this appeal, many members resigned, including the last to join, John Quain, a hairdresser. He publicly recanted his weakness in joining, claiming that he had been seduced by the smooth hypocrisy of the Chartists. There were stories of police being called to meetings of the Chartists to disrupt the gatherings, and physical violence being used against people who attended. Christopher Coyne was a supporter of O'Connell, who nonetheless attended a meeting of the Chartists to see what they were really about. According to one report, he was later assaulted and forced to explain why he had attended at an illegal assembly held at the home of Paddy O'Higgins, the mortal assassinator of the character of the Liberator. Some Catholic priests refused to baptise the children of Chartists until they withdrew from the association and surrendered their membership cards. John Lowry, a schoolteacher in Leitrim, was was forced from his employment after the parish priest denounced from the altar any parent who sent a child to be taught by him, threatening to refuse the sacraments if they disobeyed his orders. Despite these attacks, the Irish Chartists decided to make repeal of the Union one of their key principles. In November 1841, William Dyett, its secretary, 
urged the association to debate the question. This led to the publication of a pamphlet, Chartism and Repeal, which was published in 1843. It defended the six points of the Charter and included an endorsement of the principle of repeal, but also a recognition that the other reforms needed to occur first. The repealers were compared to the Prussians coming to the aid of the British at Waterloo, who would defeat once and for all the monster oligarchy. O'Connell remains unconvinced. At a meeting of the Repeal Association in January 1843, he denounced the Chartists as having assumed the name, but who were frequently called by the right name, Socialists. In response, the Chartists insisted that they were neither infidels nor socialists, but people who subscribed to the People's Charter, but the damage was done. O'Connell's words made them effectively a prescribed organisation, and many who were sympathetic refused to join for fear of losing their employment or being ostracised. The arrest and imprisonment of O'Connell in 1844 was a further setback for the Irish Chartists. Rather than continue their agitation, they decided to suspend their activities, lest it should seem guilty of offering a further and selfish obstruction to the national feeling. This was a mistake, and it went into a sharp decline, only regrouping in 1848. O'Connell's opposition to Chartism in Britain made him a hated figure in the various working-class movements. In December 1838, he was described by one leader as a base, bloody, and bloody traitor. And in Halifax, he was compared to Satan among the angels of heaven. In Hull, his portrait was publicly burnt as punishment for abandoning the cause. Such may be the fate of all apostates, it was prayed, as O'Connell was denounced as the arch-traitor of the people. But O'Connell's opposition to Chartism was not based simply on personality, as some historians have claimed, or or in political expediency, as others have suggested. All were factors, but O'Connell's views on Chartism were also shaped by his innate social conservatism and fear of revolution. When the Chartists began manufacturing pikes in Manchester to protect the constitution and the labour of the poor, it brought home to O'Connell memories of 1798. His switch between 1837 and 1838 may have been sudden, but it was inevitable given the form his political agitation had taken in the 1830s. In Ireland, Chartism was to be opposed in force, in part because it posed a serious threat to his control over the repeal movement and his leadership. The Irish Chartists claimed that repeal on its own would be meaningless unless it was accompanied by the six principles of the Charter. This was heresy, and heresy that had to be destroyed. The viciousness of the campaign was shaped by the class of uh, the viciousness of the campaign was shaped by the clash of personalities, but at its heart was the clash of how Irish rights w- were being conceptualized. O'Connell had helped create the Charter, and now he would be the one to strangle it. Thank you.